G'day mate, welcome to episode 55 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this week's episode, we are talking all things Zone 2, or aerobic endurance training. Also, in the Harden Up project, we are taking a dive into the world of Harry Watson, the mile eater, the first New Zealander to ever finish the Tour de France back in 1928. These guys are phenomenal riding these old clangers of bikes over dirt roads for over 5,000 kilometers. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. G'day mate, welcome to episode 55 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. Nick, it's good to have you here mate, what's been happening? Uh, had the mototapu on the weekend, Matty. Um, and Ooh. I will have you know, I did not cramp in any river crossings. No cramp. No cramp. Um, <laughs> so it's good to know what that. Are my, you? Oh, I can't remember what we put on that. Um, <laughs> it's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll see how I go in the epic in a few weeks' time with a cramping situation. Can't even hard enough if you didn't cramp. Right? <laughs> Still had more <laughs> to give you, see. You didn't push yourself. Apparently so, but I did just I did sneak on the three hours, bang on, and fifty-seven second mark. So I probably didn't could have had a little bit more to go to push myself but that's right but no it's good could have given a couple of percent more i could have i could have but no it was a good it's good race um fantastic event that they run over there on the motor and if anyone in new zealand or out of new zealand actually has ever looked at doing it um prior to the event i would have said don't put your money on it um but having done the event i would certainly say do it um it's a fantastic uh event so thoroughly enjoyed it um, and got to set, a, set myself a new heart rate threshold according to training picks in the race so that kind of just helps to show how hard I was going and my sodium preloading strategies worked as well because I didn't cramp so so we'll take that nice even though potentially sodium is not always related to cramp but maybe a story for another day maybe I'll let you away with that one um, I hear that you found a new performance enhancing strategy for the weekend as well. Did I? I? I hear that bikes work better when they're not locked to the top of a car. Yes, yes, I may have had a, a slight incident um, getting an hour down the road and leaving some keys behind uh, to unlock the bikes off the roof. Um, <laughs> luckily for me, it I still got to race. Um, unfortunately for my mate who I had with me, uh, he had to forego his race but joined in the bike race uh, and managed to beat me by about two minutes. So that might have been his, his reward um, or his payback. Nice. No, well done, mate, and well done to everyone out there. I know there's a lot of uh, EPC athletes and uh, athletes that were following the EPC Motatapu training plan so uh, yeah well done to everybody it was a cracking day for it as well wasn't it it was actually it was probably perfect we were a bit warmer at the start uh, on top it was fresh but a small headwind um, but I was never hot hot so I know it can get really really stinking hot but also really cold and wet up that um, valley so it's good excellent alright guys we're going to get straight into it today 
Uh, I just want to, before we get into training zones, zone two that we're going to talk about this week, I just wanted to follow up on some questions that I got about last week's episode when we were talking around um, heart rate training zones in general and field testing. Now, the biggest thing is, is I got a couple of questions about what about the zones that my Garmin or my Polar give me straight out of the box. So if you get a, if you get a device, what's going to happen is it's going to ask you for your age, for your training history, um, it's going to ask you for a bunch of different metrics. And what those do is they go into there and they come up with a formula which is essentially just your age predicted heart rate max and then it uses that to give you some training zones. And so don't use those training zones. They're based off general population norms and they're good for you know the general inactive population. But if you start to do even a sniff of exercise, especially uh, as you get older, these norms don't usually hold true anymore. So the biggest thing is, is to do the field test that Nick talked about last week and then take the zones that you calculate and actually program them into your device, whatever that might be. Now, you also need to do the field testing for individual disciplines. So if you're a triathlete or a multi-sporter, you can't just do one field test and use that heart rate zone. Let's say you do it for running, you can't go and use your running heart rate zones for biking or for swimming or for kayaking. Because the difference, there's a difference in heart rate between each discipline due to the amount of muscle mass that you use uh, and also how much your body is fighting gravity. So normally what happens is your running heart rates will be the highest because you're upright, you're working against gravity to get the blood circulating around your body. Next lowest will be your biking heart rates. They'll be a little bit lower because you're seated, you're not actually supporting your weight uh, and those will be roughly about 10 beats lower. And then in, your, in the kayak, they're about 10 beats lower again compared to biking on average. Um, and then swimming will be lower still because you're flat in the water and the water actually squeezes all of the blood to help it around your body so your heart doesn't have to work as hard. So the key to that is make sure you do a, a field test for each discipline to get your heart rates dialed in. If you don't want to do a field test, there is actually a tricky workaround. If you don't want to do a field test, but you have uh, accumulated a lot of training data, either in Strava or on training peaks, what you can actually do is go back and have a look at your training graphs and pick out that 20 minute heart rate, your peak 20 minute heart rate from however long you've been collecting the data. And you can use that in your calculations for your um, for your training zones because that's going to be you know your threshold heart rate. Ideal if you go and do a field test because we don't know how old that heart rate data is, but it's a good place to start. And that was pretty much everything I had to talk about from last week. If you've got any other questions that you want us to clarify, because uh, we do cover a lot of ground in some of these episodes, if something didn't quite make sense to you, feel free to hit me up and we will dig into it a little bit more. But without further ado, let's jump into this week's training zone, which is zone two, all about aerobic conditioning. 
two is my favourite zone, um, so I'll put that that wee disclaimer on this. Um, if I seem to be talking more passionately about it, or people that have, have talked to me about zones before, um, I, I can't stress the urgency around how important zone two actually is. Um, now, zone two is, as Maddie said, kind of your aerobic, uh, sometimes referred to as aerobic endurance zone, uh, sometimes just referred to the endurance zone or your long, steady uh, state sort of zone. Um, and it's the one that you want to spend as much of your time in as possible. Uh, now, the reason why, from a sort of a physiological point of view, um, in zone two, you are working at a, a, a low enough intensity that you're utilizing fat as your main source of energy. So we're really helping to, to increase our, our fat metabolism, uh, which in theory will then spare muscle glycogen, uh, which is our stored glucose. And if we have more stored glycogen come end of a, a race, especially we've got a little bit more energy and a little bit more to give climbing that last hill or sprinting to the finish line as it may be. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to, to maximizing our fat utilization um, and it can be done quite easily through zone two sort of training. Another area that zone two training works on is, is helping to recruit what we call type one muscle fibers or, or slow twitch muscle fibers. Now these fibers are really good at um, clearing lactate. So if we think back to our conversation last week around energy systems, uh, we're wanting to to utilize lactate that's building up as a byproduct of um, aerobic metabolism. Um, and it can be sort of reused by the muscles as an energy source. Um, and I'll let Maddie explain um, how that kind of works is, is his ex explanation before we started this uh, blew my mind. Yeah, so if you remember back to last week, we've got our anaerobic energy system, anaerobic glycolytic pathway, and the end product of that is that pyruvic acid. And depending on how much oxygen is available uh, at that time, that pyruvic acid either goes into the aerobic metabolism following that, the aerobic energy system, or it's made into lactate as a kind of a storage uh, slash distribution um, to, to get rid of it. If you're going in zone two, there's plenty of oxygen available, so that pyruvic acid flows straight into the aerobic energy system, and the aerobic energy system gets run more times, more often, and it's that, that sustained usage of the aerobic energy system that stimulates the adaptation. So if you're going just a little bit harder, let's say in zone three, you wouldn't think it would make much difference. But what happens is every time some of that pyruvic acid comes through the anaerobic energy system to start with, there's not as much oxygen available as there was before because of the work rate. So some of that gets made into lactate and not as much of it goes into the aerobic energy system. So you're running the aerobic energy system less times because some of it has to get shuttled away because there's not enough oxygen to meet the demand. So you can imagine that your pyruvic acid drops into that aerobic energy system, it runs a full cycle of our aerobic energy, and then it gets more efficient at doing that. Some of the other physiological adaptations, because I'm all about physiological adaptations, Nick mentioned that you get better at metabolizing fat, and that happens because you get more enzymes that are associated with fat metabolism. 
you get more mitochondria, which is where this aerobic metabolism happens. So the mitochondria get bigger and you get also more of them, which is pretty cool. You also get an increase in blood volume. So you get more red blood cells, which helps transport that oxygen around. And you get an increase in the size of your heart. So the pump to pump all this new blood around as well. You only get that though, not only, but you get that mostly by spending time in this aerobic zone too. So what actual percentages are we talking about, Nick, when we're talking about that zone two training zone? Cool, so if we think back to last week, we set ourselves a threshold heart rate from our field test. Um, as a percentage of that threshold heart rate uh, for like a run zone two, you're looking at around 85 to 89%. And for biking, it's about 81 to 89%. So it's, it's a relatively low heart rate when we look at it compared to threshold um, and obviously even lower if you're used to using max heart rate, um, it's gonna be quite a low percentage. But like I said, that enables us to, to really get a really nice training benefit for a fat utilization, uh, preserving our muscle glycogen, um, and as Matthew said, keeping that aerobic wheel turning more and more, uh, which will give us those benefits um, down the track. Um, so a, a training session that you might see on a, a program for a zone two um, is going to look quite boring, probably. Uh, it's going to be generally maybe a 10, 15 minute warm up uh, where you might be zone one, uh, a few little accelerations, and then it's into a big chunk generally of zone two. Um, so it tends to be the sessions where it's go out for a three hour ride or a, a one hour run or an hour and a half run or whatever it might be, um, where... The tricky part for a lot of athletes is actually that slowing down part of it. You know, you might go out with a group of friends uh, and they take off and you're like, well, my heart rate's in now zone five um, and you want to pull it back. Um, so zone two work does tend to work out better by yourself, um, dare I say it. It's a lot easier to control yourself when it's just you. Uh, it's a lot easier to control your uh, heart rate when you can control the terrain as well. So obviously anytime you start going up a hill, your heart rate's going to go up naturally. So if you're on a bike, you need to slow down to keep your heart rate in that zone. Um, and running, runners tend to struggle the most, I find, because it means sometimes they have to walk. Um, now, I did read an article uh, that Maddie might be able to comment on around if you're a runner, and you're training for a running race, and sticking in zone two isn't possible by running when you go. Uh, by sorry, by yeah, by running slow enough up a hill, then you should throw away the fact that your heart rate's now in zone three and keep running as opposed to walking from a mechanical point of view. Uh, and that might be something we can delve into a bit later on. But it's just an interesting side note about running and heart rates. Yeah, big time. And I think as um, as a good point. And I think the more important point is if you're a runner and you're doing a zone two session and your heart rate's in zone three because you're running up a hill, you should be running somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Like if you want to get the most out of your session. And I think that's that's a, a key thing, and we talked about it last week, is uh, planning for success in your sessions when it comes to sticking to your training zones. Like don't go out and do you know a massive hilly run when it's a zone two workout. Um, or don't go running where there's lots of people and you feel you know, socially pressured that you need to run faster. Go run on the flat in the dark <laughs> so people don't see how slow you're going because often that's, you know, the ego gets in the way a little bit. You don't really feel like you're doing anything. 
and that's one of the biggest points I guess of these conversations we're having around training zones is understanding why you need to be going you know or doing a certain thing so that hopefully that helps change um, how you do it because if you know why you need to be doing something um, then it often becomes a little clearer and I think a lot of people think that I need to be training harder because that's what gets me the results well if you want to improve your fat metabolism if you want to improve your aerobic capacity then you actually need in a lot of cases you need to slow down because your aerobic energy system isn't actually getting worked to its fullest capacity when you go faster because more anaerobic energy comes into it and you're not getting the the, the training impulse or the training stimulus that's going to you know maximize that aerobic output yeah and i think looking at the the percentage breakdown of what a professional athlete or a an athlete with a lot of time in their week for training their percentage doesn't get harder it just gets longer so the amount of training they do at zone two will still be relative to, to something that a an age grouper or a weekend warrior type of athlete will do um, they just have more recovery time afterwards so their longer sessions can be longer but the intensity doesn't go up uh, because they will still burn out the same as uh, anybody will really um, so keeping that intensity down when it needs to be down um, that enables you then to go hard when when you've got a hard session um, and as you get closer to your goal races the the plan will will change and there'll be more intensity um, but the overall structure for for say a 12-week period or a 16-week block will still be around about an 80% lower zone 2, zone 1 intensities um, compared to sort of 10% zone 3 and 4 and maybe 5 to 10% in zone 5 as well. For me, zone 2 is the walls to your house. Um, and from then you can put the train, the zone 3 is kind of the windows and I'll explain why I only consider them to be windows next week. Um, zone 4 is your roof um, and zone 5 is the chimney or the deck that you put on the outside of your house. Um, the foundations and the concrete block um, are your nutrition and your mental skills because they're there all the time and you can have a, an average diet but you can still go out and train okay um, but they get stronger and, and better the more you work on them and put into them so um, hopefully that analogy can kind of help with right I need to put some good solid walls up before I try and put a roof on because otherwise it's just going to fall over eventually. I often get asked like how much of my time should I be spending in my zone two? out on it so, so a long session what you know because there is some drift that happens it will drift down it might drift up and what I like to say is you want to spend the majority of the time in in the zone whatever the zone might be prescribed because there is some drift that happens and planning our, our route can uh, help with that avoiding too many hills but you might have a headwind for a little bit of the, the time and you you know you're trying to slow down but if you slow down anymore you're going to fall off your bike because you're going so slowly so try and spend the majority of the time if you drift out of it try and dial back your intensity and sort it out and, and get back into the zone as quickly as possible and again the other side of the coin as well if you start to go too slowly is that a bad thing I would say it's less of a bad thing to go slower than it is to go faster so if you've got a, a roaring tailwind for, for whatever reason and you can't get your heart rate out of that zone one into that zone two, 
don't stress about it because you're still going to be very aerobic in zone one. Um, you're just not running that aerobic energy system at the same rate. So ideally you want to be in zone two. Try not to drift up out of it too much. If you drop down out of it, don't stress too much. Try and get back in there. So spending the majority of the time within that within that zone is, is where we want to be. Anything else to add about heart rate zone two or training zone two? No, I think I think for now that that's a good uh, a good cover. Um, and I think as as we move into zones three and four, uh, the the whole picture will start to come together uh, for people. So best thing you can do is just go out there and, and do those field tests, um, find out your zones, set them up on your Garmin, Polar, Sunto, Wahoo, whatever you're using these days, um, so you know what you're doing when you're out uh, training. But also, nice. don't feel like they have to restrict you. If you want to go out for a ride with your mates and go hard and, you know, in a bunch race or a bunch run, do it. Um, this isn't something to be to be structured to the point where you're, you know, you're very military. Um, but it's a way to utilize training tools that we have to get the most out of your training if you want to. Now, just the other day, I had someone asking me about, they had a friend that they wanted to do a marathon, hadn't done much training in the past, and they wanted to get a training plan, but they didn't like the options of the personalized training because it was a little bit out of their price range. And they said, I remember you talking about training plans on the podcast. Where do I get them from? So if you cannot remember exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash plans, which is where they will all be, just head over to the Exponential Performance Coaching website, and up the top, there's a wee tab up there that says plans. Click on that, it'll take you down to a list of different plans. Some of those are for specific races, such as a marathon or a half marathon, or there are plans over there for like general training phases, such as the multi-sport winter training plan. So get over there and check those out. If you can't find a plan that suits your needs, let us know and we will see what we can come up with. But now we are going to crack into this week's Harden Up project story. Here it is. His bicycle had become a crutch. Leaning against it, he gazed up the twisting mountain road. Behind him, over 3,500 kilometers of France had already passed beneath his tires. Ahead, almost 2,000 kilometers remained. It was too far. He wanted to quit. Most competitors had already pulled out, leaving him to trail the tour's field of survivors. With saddle sores, diarrhea and chronic fatigue, his body pleaded with him to stop, but he trudged on. At the top of the 2,556 metre pass, a spectator offered him warm coffee. He gulped it down, then quickly removed his rear wheel, flipping it around to change into a higher gear. He must continue for his teammates and for New Zealand. He remounted and hurtled on down through the mighty Alps, ever closer to Paris. This was a desperate day for young Harry Watson, the hardest of a tremendously hard tour. 
the story of how he became the first New Zealander to cross the world and compete successfully in the famous Tour de France is an exceptional tale of terrible odds being overcome by determination, adaptation and national pride. So we're digging into a book called The Mile Eater. It's about Harry Watson was the first New Zealander to ever complete the Tour de France. This was way back in 1928, when the team that he joined was actually the first English-speaking team to take part in the Tour de France. He was only 24 years old, and the Tour de France was a little bit different back then. It was more of an unsupported, almost, bike race. Competitors had to find their own food, their own drink, um, they had to perform their own repairs. There was a lot to be said for being a local because the locals would come out and help you. Here we go. He has been described as a mile eater, an Iron Man of New Zealand cycling, a thoroughbred trained to the minute, and in the next breath, as a gentleman with an unruffled serenity under all conditions. More like a priest than a bike rider. So Harry Watson, he's this young guy in the South Island, uh, over in Canterbury, over on the East Coast, and he gets into cycling, and he and he picks it up really well, and he uh, starts winning a lot of races. By 1928, the Tour de France was the world's greatest and longest cycling race. Just as it does today, the tour attracted the very best riders by offering the most prestige and prize money. And it enjoyed massive public support in France, the global heart of cycling. Only two cyclists from the English-speaking world had ever ridden the Tour de France before 1928. Both of them were Australian. The first Briton completed the tour in 1955 and the first American in 1981. The race organiser from the first tour in 1903 until 1937 was the autocratic Henri de Grange, a former racing cyclist turned newspaper editor. De Grange progressively developed both the difficulty of the course and by default the nature of the racing cyclist. To explore the limits of a human being on two wheels, the race was lengthened from 2,406 kilometers in 1903 to around 5,500 kilometers in the 1920s. Interestingly, now the course seldom runs over 3,600 kilometers, so they were racing some Big distances, five and a half thousand kilometers versus the normal three and a half thousand kilometers of today's Tour de France. The course facing Watson and his teammates in 1928 was the almost perfect 5,377 kilometer loop of France, several times longer than any other road race in the English speaking world. I'm only reading sections of this book. Um, definitely well worth a read. It goes through all of his different races. I just want to pick out a few that show how hard these guys were and the, the challenges that they faced um, back in those days and how well they actually performed. So long story short, they get uh, an entry into the Tour de France first 
English-speaking team. There's four of them, three Aussies, one Kiwi. They jump on a boat, and they start their trip over to France. And it's interesting because a lot of athletes these days complain or are challenged by jet lag from flying around the world. Check out these guys are stuck on a boat. The quartet from Down Under set sail from Fremantle near Perth on the 6th of March 1928. They were troubled by seasickness in the first week, but once recovered, the whole team settled into their regular training. They pedalled on rollers morning and afternoon and added variety with boxing, skipping and a daily swim in the ship's pool. On the long voyage to France, the men became so sick and tired of training on rollers that they threatened to throw them overboard. They arrive in France... And here's, their, here's an interesting insight into their training when they got to France. Monday to Saturday, the cyclists were woken at 6.30am and after an early breakfast, they straddled their machines and ventured out onto the quiet rural roads. They followed a consistent training plan of 65, 80, 80, 100, 100 and 145 kilometre long rides. In the afternoon, they relaxed often enjoying a walk in the woods or a game of volleyball. Everybody at the camp was expected to be in bed with lights out by 9.30pm. Sunday was a day off. So there we go, interesting. They've even got the training loads and recovery nailed way back then. They've got some variation in their training. They've got some lighter days in there after their long ones. Um, and they've got recovery days in the mix as well. Sounds like a pretty solid training program in all. So their build-up's over, and here they are at the start line. At last, the day had arrived. On the summer morning of 17 June 1928, 169 of the world's best riders rode slowly through Paris, past thousands of ecstatic fans for the first stage of what Hemingway then called the greatest sporting event in the world. Here's a little bit of an uh, excerpt about the cutting, what they call here, the cutting edge gear and nutrition. Riders carried two spare tubulars, one under their saddle and the other over their shoulders. The pumps were new to Watson. Each man carried a compressed air pump in a long race, with sufficient air to pump up four tyres. The result is that a puncture can be mended and the rider ready for the road in about two minutes. Goggles were new too. Watson found them hot and uncomfortable, but the roads were dusty and often the light was glaring. At the end of a stage, we would have our eyes running with tears and would be unable to see because of the glare that is reflected off the asphalt roads. All the Continental riders wear goggles the whole time, but we wore ours for only part of the ride as they got in our way. The food bags contained high-energy treats like bananas, oranges, figs, sugar loaf, cheese, rice cakes and cutlets, chocolate, raisins, and at times a chicken leg and raw eggs. Pretty solid nutrition plan there, maybe apart from the... Uh, chicken legs and raw eggs, I'm not sure how that'd go down being stuck in a, a food bag for a while in the hot sun. Uh, taking drugs to survive multi-day races was common and seems to still be common these days as well. We suffered on those roads, exclaimed the 
1923 tour winner. Do you want to know how we keep going? Cocaine for our eyes, chloroform for the boils and pills. We ride on dynamite. So interesting, they used cocaine, like there's cocaine drops that they put in their eyes uh, to, to soothe their eyes after long days in the saddle. Interestingly, Douglas Mawson from our previous uh, Harden Up Project story, they used cocaine drops in the Antarctic as well for snow blindness. So it was actually a prescribed medicine. Now the stages that these guys were tackling uh, are incredible. The roads that they're riding on are atrocious. So they're riding these old road bikes. After covering 1,674 kilometers in eight days, the riders finally pushed for a day's rest. Only 100 of the 169 starters remained. The 24-year-old Watson was a credible 18th in the general classification. Stage 9 was 387 kilometers long and climbed into the hearts of the Pyrenees. The dirt roads over these passes were described as donkey tracks strewn with rocks and potholes and closed much of the year with snow. Their inclusion in the tour initially drew outrage from the riders. In order to finish such a mammoth stage in daylight, the riders had to start at midnight. Bunches riding along rough country roads without lights or street lamps presented a fresh set of problems for the tour's novices. In unfamiliar languages, tense riders would bark out warnings of approaching obstacles or if you were riding too close. But these guys didn't understand any of it. So they're riding these old road bikes with two gears over these massive mountain passes on these rough as guts roads. And they're doing it in the dark because they have to start so late or early in the, in the night, the previous night to finish in daylight, that they're riding in the dark in these big bunches. It's absolutely crazy. It's like a... Uh, I don't know what it's like. It's kind of like a cross between a mountain bike race, um, a brevet, um, and a road race. It's, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. After 18 hours and 36 minutes, a tired but calm Watson rode into the finish, 38th place on the stage. None of the Australasians came away from the stage unscathed. Opperman fell three times and had three punches. Watson punctured and crashed twice. Osborne took a serious fall that left him with his head in bandages, while Bainbridge was covered in bruises and scrapes from repeated spills. So you can see it's pretty brutal um, conditions out there. Here's a little thing about their gears, which I found quite interesting, and any of you cyclists out here may be able to relate. By 1928, derailleurs, the things that change your gears, were widely used by touring cyclists in France, but they were not permitted in the Tour de France until 1937. And this is actually the year after de Grange, the guy who founded the Tour de France, actually retired. De Grange believed they were contraptions unworthy of real men. <laughs> How awesome is that? Unworthy of real men. That's a derailleur. Just something simple as changing your gear. He was such a hard ass in everything that he did. And everything was so pure. Even something as simple as gears and free hubs. Which now 
you have to be in a pretty much a secret society of fixies or uh, single speeders to be part of that. But that's what bikes used to be like in the Tour de France. Now, gears and derailleurs and free hubs are just standard on all bikes. And old de Grange thought they were contraptions unworthy of real men. And if you needed if you needed a derailleur, you just needed to hard it up a little bit. Racers used fixed wheeled bikes with two sprockets on either side of the real hub, providing them with four gear options. Free wheels were used around this time, although it appears the grunge also banned them for a number of years. To change a gear, a rider had to stop, undo the wing nuts on the rear wheel, and move the chain into a second cog, or turn the reel around to obtain one of the other two gear options. Watson used a 46-inch climbing gear in the Pyrenees, and this equates to a 36 chainring by a 23 rear sprocket on a modern road bike. So this is about Bainbridge, um, and another one of the Australian riders in the team. For nearly three weeks, Bainbridge had battled along the road, affected with influenza in the early stages. And remember, influenza used to kill people back in these days. It still does now. He finished the final mountain stage, but he did not sign the control, so he didn't sign them that he'd finished um, to start the next day. Bitterly disappointed, he retired on the advice of the medical officer. Three quarters of the field failed to complete the 1928 tour, but none had travelled so far or felt the weight of patriotic duty as heavily as the 37-year-old Bainbridge, whose first trip to France had been during the First World War. So he'd been over there fighting in the First World War. He's back now riding his bike. Just behind Bainbridge, in last place for this stage, came Harry Watson, suffering from stomach cramps and diarrhoea. He was unable to take on adequate nourishment and was steadily wasting away. He was reduced to walking on one of the steep hills. Punches and crashes made life misery, but he finally made it out of the mountains. He collapsed from his bike after 17 hours and 37 minutes on the road. He walked unsteadily to the control, hesitated at the table for a moment, and signed his name to continue. Many times during the race, Watson later stated, especially times when I was suffering from stomach trouble and felt like quitting, I thought of the Prime Minister's message from the people of New Zealand, and this spurred me on to fight it to the finish. Here's a little bit of a laugh about the, the leader of the race. He was leading overall by more than an hour. Suddenly, his fork breaks. If it was a Tour de France today, what would happen? Motorbike or a car would be there, boom, new bike, gone within a few seconds. Not, not in 1928. He frantically searched for a replacement bicycle, but could only find a woman's roadster. It was far too small for the six-foot champion, but still faster than foot cycling, as in walking or running. Paced by his loyal team, who had waited for him, he raced it for the last hundred kilometers of the stage. He was half an hour behind on the stage, but retained the yellow jersey. <laughs> How brilliant is that? Just your bike breaks, so you find another bike, and it happens to be a woman's bike who's way too small for you. It's not even a racing bike, and he rides it for the last 100 kilometers. 
these these races were absolutely insane. Paris at last. After a month in the saddle, the start of the final stage to Paris was a celebration. We were overjoyed when we came to the start of the last stage into Paris, said Watson. At last, the trials and tribulations of the past month were nearing a year. Although the 330 kilometers might seem a lot for the final stage, it was softened by a mass start. For most of the day, the 41 survivors rolled along, enjoying the view, joking with spectators and swearing to each other they would never do another tour. <laughs> so the last stage is still 330 kilometers. Imagine that. Most people haven't even ridden 330 kilometers at all. Imagine riding 330 kilometers after you'd ridden 5,000 kilometers on these atrocious roads on these old school bikes. Watson had finished 28th overall with a time of 209 hours, 42 minutes and 50 seconds. His average speed was 26 kilometers per hour. Watson was satisfied. The tour had finished at last, and in my opinion, our team had done exceptionally well. From end to end, it had been a supreme test of endurance, a test that has tried out the men and their machines, a test that stands unparalleled in the world of sport. The really cool thing is is that these guys went over there fighting against all odd odds. Their, their team had four riders in it. Other teams had ten riders. And what they allowed these other bigger you know, teams from the local area or French teams is they actually traded out riders halfway through the race. So they had fresh riders coming in to support their, their lead men, whereas these other guys were just battling away by themselves. It's a just an awesome Anzac camaraderie and this ability to do more with less and when the going gets tough, uh, pull out all the stops somehow and, and make it happen. And I think this is just a awesome story about that. This is guys going over to take on the world, so to speak. Um, don't know the language, anything, and they just they're just killing it. The emaciated Australasian team returned from Paris to their training camp as soon as the tour ended. Watson was still suffering from intermittent bouts of dysentery. I was down on I was down to skin and bone at the end. Bainbridge, who had remained with the team after he pulled out as a support crew member, was thin and demoralised, and both he and Osborne were heartily sick of cycling. These guys were hard. They had the basics. They did more with less. They went out there, and they absolutely took it to the world at a time when it was hard to get places. The roads were rough, all those things. For you now, going out for a ride... You know, can you, you roadies these days? They complain, you know, that the chip is too rough for their carbon fiber bikes that have got carbon seat posts, that have got carbon forks that are meant to absorb road vibrations. You know, they're complaining that it's too rough. Here's old Harry Watson out here on his old rigid single speed, um, often fixed gear bike just ripping it to pieces, just eating miles for breakfast. So get out there, take a leaf out of old Harry Watson, the Mile Eater's book, and harden up.
So, Harry Watson, the mile eater. Nick, what did you think of it? I it blew me away actually. I, I I've never heard of Harry Watson before, um, and I haven't really had had too much to do with the Tour de France from an earlier point of view in terms of the distances they rode, the sort of bikes they were using, um, the conditions they were in, and so forth. I knew it was a lot tougher than it is now, obviously, um, and that they rode some pretty interesting bikes. But it was a really good eye opener into the experiences people had, I guess, at that stage, the distances they were riding. Um, and how how far we've come in terms of altering our gear um, and our nutrition and our travel, um, but how soft we've become in terms of how far we're riding and the you know the conditions we put these athletes that are now paid um, truckloads of money to to do the race. Yeah, I, I was I was just I was blown away largely with the distance because the distance is, is phenomenal like 5,000 odd kilometres the most I've ever ridden and was the Tour of Aotearoa which is self-supported and I kind of likened it to what the story was about because we were on some very rough roads it was mountain biking though so we had a bike that was better suited for it but that was 3,000 k's I just can't even imagine 5,000 k's but the thing that really got me was that the old gear the rough roads, the you know, there's the terrible conditions and what they were up against in terms of like the French completely stitched up the whole race to favour the French. Like uh, I, I covered it in there that they were only allowed a certain amount of t- uh, people in their teams, but the bigger teams they were allowed to sub people out of their teams halfway through, bring fresh riders in, whereas the smaller teams you couldn't do that. Um, so it was pretty awesome being the you know the first English-speaking team to ever to ever head over there, and only two other English-speaking people had ever done the race. But the thing that really surprised me was actually how fast these guys rode on these rough roads and and terrible bikes. Like his average speed for five thousand kilometers of rough road including the Pyrenees and the Alps was 26 kilometers an hour which is phenomenally fast uh, and it doesn't really stack up next to the Tour de France riders of these days because the roads are obviously sealed there's a lot of different team dynamics um, there's you know you don't have to stop and take your wheel off to change gear anymore <laughs> so it, it, it all of that is factored into that 26 kilometers and 26 kilometers an hour and his riding time was 209 hours that's ridiculous riding at night with no lights yeah that part blew me away yes man man and having to start at midnight or the midnight the night before so you could finish in daylight because these stages were so so long like 18 hour stages i've ridden my bike for you know like 20 hours uh 24 hours and you completely destroyed at the end of it but then to get up and do it again and then do it again and then do it again i mean they were regularly riding you know 300 plus k's a day on these rickety old bikes with um you know with terrible roads yeah it'd be amazing to take you know the top five professional teams from from now and put them on older bikes 
uh, older gear, cut their support, um, and see how they went. Yeah, I'd say there'd be a few tantrums. <laughs> yes. Yes, that'd be one way to describe it. How do you charge your DI2 when you're out there for that long? <laughs> yeah, or your, your wireless heart rate power, you know. Yeah, and like with, um, what was his name? Henri de Grange. My French is terrible. But um, the, the organiser of the Tour de France in, uh, on those early years, he just made the race longer and harder to test these guys. And um, I just love how he was so ruthless. He was like, any new technology is like free hubs, nut. We're not having free hubs that, you know, man, you got to be manly enough not to use free hubs or derailers. What did he even call it? I'm going to get it in quote it. Contraptions unworthy of real men. <laughs> he was just the king of hard enough. He just loved to keep it pure and, and hard. One really cool thing I found while uh, having a wee Google around the place was uh, Phil Kogan, who was the guy, the presenter of The Amazing Race. This guy actually, a couple of years ago, he got together all of the old bikes, the same ones that Harry Watson and the guys used, and he got all the original gear, and he did a lot of research around it, and he went and retraced the 1928 Tour de France that Harry Watson rode, kind of in his shoes, because Phil is a is an expat New Zealander, and he kind of does these weird little missions that he does about recreating some old sort of uh, experiences, and it's called Le Ride, and it's pretty cool. I haven't seen the whole thing because you've got to buy it on YouTube, but I I found little snippets in different days and that sort of thing, and it's amazing how hard it was to do this ride even you know now with really nice paved roads for the largest part on these old bikes he was riding down the cobblestones at this in, in the first stage in paris and his comments were like i feel like the bike's going to blow to pieces on these cobblestones because all like the aluminium drink bottles that they put on the front of their bikes were rattling around and it felt like it was all going to blow to pieces but well worth a look if you're, if you're looking for something to check it out. So I guess a little bit closer to, to home, there's an article that popped up on, on a news website this morning um, about a guy from Christchurch. His name is Andy Beale. Um, and I, if anyone out there knows Andy and wants to give him a shout out from us, it would be quite interesting to talk to him. But he is about to undertake a, a race called La Race, which is from Christchurch to Akaroa. I believe it's about 105 kilometres um, over a couple of decent sort of hilly, um, I guess New Zealand mountain sort of passes. Um, and he's doing that on a vintage bicycle, uh, which is built somewhere between 1916 and 1921 with wooden wheel rims. Uh, it was initially built as a track bike, uh, so it had no brakes and one gear. So he has had to put some brakes on it to, to make it legal for the race. Uh, but he is gonna ride that on this 105 kilometer race uh, in a couple of weeks down in Christchurch. Yeah, he's a bit of an animal, actually. He does some really long, hard rides, like Everestine. He's done he's done a number of Everestines, uh, and one like on a real small wheeled folding bike, I think, like just crazy stuff. He's an he's an animal. Nice. Uh, we definitely need to talk to him at some point. Yeah, that would be cool, actually. And I think it, it, it throws a really interesting conversation in there around gear, 
Um, and I've been very um, guilty of this in, in the past as well. You know, oh, I have to have this bit of gear and I've got to have these shoes and, and so forth. And thinking back to the Mototapu a few days ago, I was biking past people in gym shoes on flat pedals, you know, and here's me on my, my cross-country shoes, my, you know, carbon fibre shoes and, and really skinny wee pedals and, and thinking, man, these guys are just out there doing it. They're doing the same race as me working potentially just as hard, having just as much fun, and they're in a flat pair of shoes. There was one guy in a pair of Crocs, you know? Like, how, how awesome is that, you know? And I think sometimes, especially as, as athletes, and I'll, I'll quotate that, um, we get carried away by having to be, have the gear and have all the, you know, the GPS watch and the computer this, and, and we forget about just actually going out there and riding, um, and riding hard within ourselves, so. It's a really timely, a timely story, I guess, to to reflect on gear that you don't need. Just get out there and do it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yes, and for all of those listeners that are, you know, from New Zealand and from Australia, it's kind of that ANZAC spirit that we've been brought up with. That New Zealanders and Australians often go out there against the world. Uh, and do more with less. We have to make do. We're a pioneering nation. And no matter what country you're from, if you look back in your history, that is what people were like. You didn't have everything available, so you had to make do, and you just went and, and did it at the best of your ability. And it's all about hardening up. And remember, hardening up is not about suppressing your emotions and manning up. It's not about being physically violent or aggressive towards other people, telling them to harden up. No, hardening up is about you developing an understanding that no matter how hard something gets, no matter how cold, wet, hungry, scared, frustrated, tired, or sore you are, you have more to give. How do I know this? Well, I know this because others have been there before in many challenging situations, just like we heard about today with Harry Watson. You have more to give. Dig deeper, harden up, and get on with it. Remember, it's not just in training where this applies, but also in life in general. Hard enough and make that call. Hard enough and stand up for what is right. Hard enough and follow your dreams. Hard enough and say you're sorry, because sometimes that's the hardest thing of all. Hard enough and hold your tongue when you don't need to talk. Hard enough and help others. And hard enough and ask for help if you need it. Whatever it is, Harden up and get on with it, because you have more to give. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. 
make sure you check out the range of t-shirts we have over at the Exponential Performance Podcast store. And this includes the Harden Up t-shirts. All the profits from these will go straight back into the podcast directly to help the production of it. Or if you would like to make a small $1 donation, you can do so over at the exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash donate page. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you next week.